Ah, so good. Uh, I found myself thinking halfway through, I think, Josh, you picked all my favorite songs this week, and then I remember thinking that last week. Um, I think this is my favorite topic, to sing about the great love of our God. Uh, what, a, what a joy um, to worship together. And uh, after 11 weeks of having this room dark and nothing but one table and a camera, and uh, Josh and a couple people leading, and then one or two of us back here alone singing our hearts out like crazy people. Um, it is so good to have voices surrounding us. And uh, just remind again of Ephesians 5, down near the, down near the end, 1819, um, Paul, Paul says, um, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, um, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord in your hearts. Um, as, we, as we gather for worship, um, and that's part of the value of physically gathering, we actually are addressing one another as we sing, declaring to one another um, how great is the love of our God. And, uh, and, and that encouragement uh, is so, so vital for us as a church. Um, but let's, uh, let's get into God's Word. Kids, you got your uh, fill-in sheets? Uh, I hope, uh, I don't, do we have any of those left if they don't anyway? We'd, everyone, it looks like everyone's got one. Um, kids at home, I hope uh, you can bug your parents. Print one of those off for me next week. And uh, I, won't, I won't tell the kids at home, but I brought chocolate this time. If you filled out your sheet, um, I have some candies and I'll meet you outside afterwards. So um, try, to, try to get them all as best you can. If you are too young and the whole writing and reading thing is too much, here's what you need to do. You need to draw me a picture. And my one rule is it can't be a picture of me. It has to be a picture from something from the sermon. And, uh, and I have a gift for you afterwards. So let's, uh, let's get after it. Um, kids, I want your help right off the bat. How many of you ever seen the Disney classic movies? Do you guys know which ones I'm talking about? Like Cinderella and Sleeping... Yeah, your hand goes up. My daughter has. You guys have seen some of the Disney classics? Okay, what is... That one beautiful phrase that ends them all, that brings everything, convinces you everything's going to be okay. What do they say? No. (laughs) That's not Disney fairy tale. Disney now, I guess. What's that closing sentence that tells you everything's going to be okay? Oh, they lived happily ever after. You had it. I know you did. Extra chocolate for you. Remind me. Ryan, it's this beautiful thing. They live happily ever after. You know, my wife will watch any movie with me as long as she knows at the end they all live happily ever after. That's all that matters, right? She'll, she'll sit through all kinds of stuff as long as in the end they live happily ever after. Um, today we come to the last chapter in the book of Exodus. And uh, I think... This is sermon number 47 since we started in, in January 2019, um, which feels like eons ago now. Um, but we have worked our way through the book of Exodus verse by verse. By the end of today, we will have read publicly and together every single verse of these 40 chapters. And, uh, and God has been so good. It has been a marvelous journey. I have loved studying it, and I've heard feedback from you of the things that God has just kind of brought alive to you and encouraged you with as we've gone through it. Uh, But chapter 40 is Israel's happily ever after. This is it. This is this kind of beautiful culmination. Now, some of you are like, um, I read the Bible. (laughs) It's not the way it goes from here. Um, You're right. Beyond Exodus, if you get into 
Leviticus, Numbers, Judges, Kings, Jeremiah, what happened? Their, their future from here is rough. It is far from over for Israel. The fact of the matter is the story for Israel from here on is, is one of rebellion and disobedience and, and heartbreak and ultimately failure on their part, though the Lord is faithful. But Exodus 40 is still um, this beautiful chapter that ends the, the Exodus narrative, this, this storyline uh, of Exodus with this happily ever after. Um, as you're reading through the, the flow of this story, um, if, if many of you remember back to, uh, back to your, your lit classes and, and trying to map out the narrative arc of a story and how the story builds and, and grows, um, this story begins in Genesis. God created the perfect world. That's our, that's our starting premise. That's our stasis. God created Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with him. It's this beautiful thing. Um, they're his people, and, and they have a relationship with him. They're his reflection of his glory in the world as they, they rule over the garden as his ambassadors living in close personal relationship with him. But like any good story, there's an incident. There's a, a crisis that comes a problem that desperately needs to be solved, Adam and Eve sin. They bring chaos and death into this world. Their perfect relationship with the Lord is broken. They fail in their role as as image bearers of God, as mirrors reflecting His glory. Now immediately after that, possibly even just hours later, the Lord met with Adam and Eve and He made them this promise that he's going to send a rescuer, uh, one who would save them from the damage done by their sin, uh, one who would fix their relationship with him and would restore them back to being his people, restore their place as his image bearers fully. And so there's this tension that grows, and and that tension continues to build all the way through the book of Genesis uh, as God continues to reiterate this promise to Abraham and Isaac and then to Jacob. And each time he's saying, it's it's to and through your family that I'm going to fulfill this promise, that it's going to happen. And that tension builds to its height at the very beginning of the book of Exodus. And we see Israel, uh, Jacob's renamed Israel, his family now becomes the nation of Israel, the ones that God has promised to, to work out this salvation through, and they're slaves in Egypt, destitute, under threat of being absolutely wiped out. This is the, this is the bottom. This is the pit. And it's there in the very darkest moment when the Lord steps in and he comes to rescue. And, and he, he comes as, as the knight in shining armor on his white horse and he slays the mighty dragon of Egypt and he decimates them and wipes them out. Um, and and he, he rescues his princess. He saves his people of, of Israel and, and he promises he will bring her to his home, this land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. And, and then there's a surprise plot twist Um, The princess falls in love with another man, right? She builds this golden calf and she worships it, but soon realizes he's an imposter. He will never give her what she needs. And and so um, she pleads with the knight, take her back. 
make her his bride again, and, and he does. And they renew their wedding vows through the end of verses 33 and 34. 35 through 39 then is the, the, the building of the pieces of the tabernacle. They're, they're preparing, they're putting this relationship back together. And chapter 40 is this great happily ever after. And though there's, there's more story to tell, um, many ways this is not the conclusion, but it is the resolution of this story. It's God and man brought back together again. It's, it's God's people restored to being his representatives of his glory on this earth, this reflection of him, and, and back into relationship with him. So um, turn with me to Exodus chapter 40, and we're going to read it together. I'll show you what I'm looking at. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, there was some sprinkled on the, on the seats, or if you're at home, go grab one. You're going to want it. Um, of course, everybody's got their phone. You've got ESV.org right there. Um, but I want you to have God's word open in front of you. I, I bring nothing to the table. Uh, I have no great wisdom. Um, all I have uh, is God's word that you and I come together to sit under. And, and, and my goal is just to make that clear. And so I want you to be looking at these pages and seeing for yourself what's there. Um, now, I, I wanna, what I want to do is, is kind of walk through these verses of this chapter and, and just ask, um, what did this mean for them? What, what did this mean for Israel in that time and place? And then once we've kind of walked through it, we're going to circle back and ask, okay, now what does it mean for us? What does this have to do with our lives? So um, let's, uh, let's turn to God's word together. But before we do, um, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to a stubborn, disobedient, wicked people who deserved destruction. But you're so gracious, and you rescued them, and you put your glory on display. Lord, help us to see it fresh this morning. Lord, would you loose my tongue for the glory of your name to proclaim your truth, to speak clearly and accurately. And God, would you soften our hearts? Would you open our eyes to see um, the wonders of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ fresh again today, Um, Lord, that that you would be lifted up in our hearts and that we would live um, for the honor of your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get into chapter 40, um, like every happily ever after, every happy ending, what, what we really have uh, is a new beginning, right? It's the beginning of a new story. Um, and that's how chapter 40 starts. So kids, that's point one there, verses one to 15, a new beginning. Let me, let me read these first 15 verses for us and then we'll deal with those. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and you shall set up the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it, and you shall, put up, you shall put up the court all around and hang up the screen 
for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the burnt the altar of burnt offering and all the utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. And you shall also anoint the basin and its stands and consecrate it. And then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him. And then he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout all their generations. This idea of the new beginning shows up right off the bat. Um, The Lord tells Moses that he's to set up the tabernacle and he's to do it on the first day of the first month. Why? What's going on? The tabernacle is finally built on the first day of the new year. So why does that matter? What's the significance of this for Israel? Um, Kids, can anyone tell me what happened one year before this? Does anyone know what happened in the first month of the first year? No? How about parents? What happened a year before this? What? What? The Passover, bingo. Yeah, the end of the Exodus. That's what they're, they're counting up from. That's what they count as the, the beginning of their year, the beginning of their, really, their new existence as a nation. And so God told them during the last plague as he, as he slew the firstborn in every household and he protected his people through the Passover, and he said, this will be the first month for you. Mark it. Remember it. Every year begins with the Passover. This is who we are. And so um, there's, there's kind of a, a bookend effect here. In Exodus chapter 12, they began the Passover on the first month. And then here in chapter 40, they end this process in the first month. And everything is put into action. And they're setting up the tabernacle so that it's ready for the first Passover that happens on the 10th day. And so... Um, This is the end of that process of setting them aside. It started on the first month and it ended on the first month. And and, and so in some sense, maybe the wedding has come to a conclusion and we're moving into the marriage now. And what is this new life like? Well, it's spelled out in verse 2. Moses was to erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Um, Now, don't confuse this with the tent of meeting that Moses set up um, in Israel's rebellion outside of the camp. Um, This is the tabernacle, which is the tent of meeting. Um, Sometimes the tabernacle is called by that name on its own. Sometimes it's called the tent of meeting. Here it's called both. And and I think that's significant that they're both used together here. Um, These two names speak of the same structure, but from a different perspective, right? Um, The word tabernacle means tabernacle. Tent. It's a temporary dwelling. God is coming to tent among them. To any kids like going camping? Anybody go camping yet this summer? Yeah. Um, God is going to camp among them. So tabernacle emphasizes the Lord coming down to them. I'm coming to you to be with His people, to dwell with them. Now the tent of meeting. Um, that's from the people's perspective. The tent of meeting uh, is speaking of the people going up to the Lord. This is where we meet God. This is where we come to 
him. And so it emphasizes this is where they would go uh, up to the Lord. So the tabernacle is God coming down the tent of meeting as the people approaching the Lord. Uh, and, and these two realities are right at the heart of what it means for them to be the people of God. Remember the Lord said, um, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so verses 3 to 8, um, Moses unpacks this. Verses 3 to 8 uh, are the Lord coming down and then 9 to 15 is the people coming to the Lord. Um, so first, let's look at the Lord coming down to them, verses 3 to 8. Um, God is saying, I will be with you. He will be with them. Moses was to build, to set up the tabernacle with all its elements. So they've been at Mount Sinai probably nine months now, building all of the pieces, and now it's all coming together. Um, chapters 35 to 39 that we, we looked at those chapters through January and March in details we went through the tabernacle um, but but this is those pieces now finally being put into action um, and each of those pieces is so rich with meaning God is communicating through all of this so clearly we're so tempted to just kind of skim through this don't Stop and think, what does that mean? What are these pieces about? Let me just refresh your memory um, with, with way too little detail. I want to just spend six weeks here again. Um, but the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord is saying that the Ark with the, the Ten Commandments inside and the atonement cover on top where the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled, and my presence will dwell above it. The Ark of the Covenant is where I will shelter you from the condemnation of the law. My presence will be right there and you'll be protected from the, from the condemnation of the law. And, and the screen of the ark, the veil that was to be set there, um, protected them from the fullness of the presence of the Lord. They couldn't handle it. It wasn't safe for them. Verse 4, um, the table of showbread. I hope you remember, I should have had a picture again, of where all these pieces go. The, the ark at the back behind the screen, and then as you come out, you have on the left-hand side the, the table of showbread set. And, and it's God saying, I want to have dinner with you. I want to have that kind of intimate, personal relationship. I want to sit down over supper and share bread with you, have a meal together. The lampstand on the other side, on the south side of the tabernacle, built um, in the shape of a, of a blossoming tree. God is saying, I will give you new life and I will be your light among you. The golden altar of incense in front of the screen, in front of the veil in the center. And they were to light the incense and that fragrant smoke going up was to represent their prayers. God is saying, I love the smell of your prayers. It's sweet in my nostrils. I want you to come. I want to hear from you. Outside of the main tent then is the burnt offering, the altar burnt offering in the wash basin. A place of sacrifice for sin and cleansing from guilt. God is making a way for them to come to him, to pay for their sin, to wash them clean. And then there's the, the court around the tabernacle. There's a, there's a wall all the way around and a single gate. And it's God's clear statement. There's one way in. You only come to me the way that I have laid out through the altar burnt offering, through the wash basin. This is the way you come to me, the way that I have provided and no other way. If you remember, we, we measured this out. That main tent of the tabernacle is, is pretty similar to the size of this building. It's not a big place. 
the God of the universe, the one who created all that is, who is not contained by the far reaches of space, said, I will be with you and I will stay in this tent. This is where I'll be. It's God with them. And then verses 9 to 15 flip the perspective God is coming down and now he's inviting the people to approach him. He's making a way for them to come. They're to take the anointing oil, special mixture of oils and spices that the Lord had given them specific instructions on how to blend and and what to put in it. Uh, And they were to anoint um, the tabernacle and and all that was in it. To anoint simply means to to take a bit of, uh, of that oil and just put a few drops onto that peace. But it's a significant thing. Whatever the oil was placed on was to be then set aside. It was, it was sacred. It was, it was set aside for a special purpose. Kids, it's like when you go to grandma's place. Um, if you go there any other normal day and she serves you dinner, you just get normal, plain old plates. You go at Christmas time, what do you get? You get grandma's fine china, right? You get the special dishes. Those dishes are set aside for a special purpose, right? For when the whole family is gathered at at Easter or or Christmas or Thanksgiving, um, those plates are set apart for a purpose. And and that's kind of what this practice is. God is saying, that's how you treat the tabernacle. That's how how you treat all that is in it. It's special. It's set apart for one purpose of coming together to seek me. They're set aside for me. And, and, and that's just what the word holy means. And as you skim through those verses, you'll see uh, that it may be made holy. You'll see the word consecrate over and over again. It's the same root word, kadosh. It's holy. These are set aside for the Lord. And not only was the tabernacle and the pieces in it to be holy and, and set apart, but so were the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were part of the tribe of Levi. They were also to be set apart. And they were to be washed with water and dressed in their special priestly garments that are also just rich with meaning of how they had the, the stones with the names of all the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as they went into the, temp, into the tabernacle, they were representing the people. They were carrying the names of the people of God with them. And they were to be anointed with oil and set aside as priests. And so they were, in a way, part of the tabernacle. But they were... They were to be the representatives of the people coming to God. The priests would represent them. Um, and so how did, you, how did you approach God in that day? How did, you, how did you come to him? Through the priest. You would bring your sacrifice and the priest would take it to the Lord and offer it. The priests would offer the, the prayers and the worship in the presence of the Lord on your behalf. Uh, and this was a gracious, wonderful thing. And so this is their new beginning. This is their new reality. The Lord has come down to them and he has made a way for them to come up to him with their worship and their sacrifice and their prayers through the priests. That's their new beginning. That's that's who they are now. God is their God and they're his people. Um, But that new beginning is only possible, ready kids, because of a new obedience. A new obedience. We see this in verses 16 to 33. Let me read this for us. Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. 
Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and he put its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as, as the Lord commanded Moses. He took the testimony, that's the Ten Commandments, and put it into the ark. And he put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table of the sorry, he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and he burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen of the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of the burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle at the tent of meeting and offered on it burnt offering and grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and feet when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the work. Stop for a moment and just remember where we've come from. Remember the incident of the golden calf. This is where they got themselves on their own. This is where uh, they go. They They were hungry for the glory of God. They had seen his glory high from the mountaintop and and Moses had gone up the mountain to hear from God and and to bring back the instructions of how they were to be God's people. He's he's getting the instructions of how to build the tabernacle. They don't know it yet. But Moses was gone 40 days and so the people said, whatever became of that Moses, we don't know about him. Wherever he went, we're going to do it our own way. Forget about him. Forget about the instructions God's giving him. We'll do it our way. Here was their sin. They said, we're going to do it our way. We're going to go to God our own way. We will make a golden calf and we'll worship that as our God. And they said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. So they rejected Moses. And without knowing it, they rejected the tabernacle. And they disobeyed God trying to come to him their own way by the works of their own hands. And so these verses here in Exodus 40, are the exact opposite of the golden calf in so many ways. Once again, uh, these 17 verses are just beautifully summarized uh, in the first verse of the bunch. Um, Verse 16 says, This Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. He obeyed. Moses did it right. And it goes on to explain all the things that he did as he obeyed, and it goes through it in detail. And and in case you missed it, um, 17 verses and one phrase is repeated eight times. Did you catch it? As the Lord commanded Moses. He did it. He did it exactly as he was told. Like, get the point. Moses obeyed. Moses obeyed. Moses obeyed. Moses did it all 
God's way. He did it all God's way. And so whereas before the people had rejected Moses and acted on their own and acted in disobedience to the Lord, now they've accepted Moses and he's acting on their behalf and he is perfectly carrying out exactly what God commanded. This is what the Lord intended. This is the way it was supposed to work. Moses setting up the tabernacle for them and Moses himself, verse 27 burned the first fragrant incense on the altar. And in verse 29, offered the first burnt offering on the altar. And verse 30, filled the wash basin with water and washed Aaron and his sons. Their old way, doing it according to their own wisdom, the work of their own hands, it almost got them destroyed, wiped out by the wrath of God. Their new beginning could only happen with a new obedience, an obedience they didn't have. It's the obedience of Moses. Moses did all that he was commanded on their behalf. And and this leads us to verses 34 to 38, the last section here, um, a new blessing. It's point three. A new blessing. Finally, these verses bring this book to its culmination. This is, the, this is the high point. This is the end, the goal of the entire Exodus narrative. Let me, let me read these last verses for us, starting in verse 34. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But when the cloud was not taken up, they would not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The tabernacle was finally finished and assembled. The first incense had been lit. The first offerings had been sacrificed. And now it finally happened. The glory of the Lord, the shining radiance of his majesty fills the tabernacle. Unbelievable what it would have been like to be there, to see the cloud come down, to, to have the sun set and see that cloud replaced with fire. And no, God is there. He's present. His presence was so imminent that even Moses, who had, who had seen the Lord in the burning bush and who had met with God at the top of Mount Sinai and, and had talked with him as if face-to-face in the tent of meeting that he first built, he can't even go into the tabernacle. It's too much. It's so thick. This is it. This is the Lord with them. The God of the universe in their midst. And the cloud was over the temple by day and fire by night. And if they ever doubted, they ever wondered, where is God? Is he still with us? Does he still love us? Is he, are we still his people? Are we still in his favor? They needed only to look to the middle of the camp and to see there's the cloud. He's still here. He's still with us. The glory of the Lord was with them, but the glory of the Lord was also moving them forward. The glory of the Lord is moving them forward. 
They would look to the cloud, and if the cloud stayed, they stayed. And if the cloud lifted and moved, they would go after. And so it would go all the way through the wilderness. They would follow the glory cloud through to the promised land. The glory of the Lord is bringing them to their final destination, is bringing them through. Now again, if you've read the rest of the Bible, you know. There's a lot more to the story of Israel these are the, the final words of this Exodus narrative. And you can see they have that just kind of happily ever after kind of quality. It's this resolution. The Lord is with them and he's leading them onward and they followed him. Now let's circle back and ask, what does this have to do with us? Like this is a, a beautiful story. It really does have these kind of fairy tale elements of the, the helpless princess rescued by the invincible knight who comes and, and conquers evil and saves the day and makes her his bride. And, and even though they're unfaithful and, and turn away after another lover, he wins them back and, and he's faithful and he makes this way for their happily ever after. But, but so what? There are all kinds of beautiful stories out there. I watched all of the Disney classics probably a hundred times growing up. Not one of them has deeply affected my soul. What makes this story any different? Well, for one, it's true. It's not a fairy tale. It isn't make-believe. Moses wrote this down, and we have this account of what actually happened. But that still doesn't bring it home to me. Here's the key. And this is the key as you read through the Old Testament to always be looking for this reality. It's always there. This amazing story, this story of Exodus and the Red Sea and Mount Sinai and the, and the tabernacle, it's not just Israel's story written by Moses. This is our story written by God. This is the story of every single believer in Jesus When Adam and Eve first sinned, first broke that perfect relationship with the Lord, forfeited their place as His, the Lord promised, I will send a rescuer. I'm going to send one who's going to undo the penalty and power of sin that that rules over you. And as the Lord is playing out this story, physically saving His people Israel out from slavery and making them His own, He's at the same time telling the world, this is what my greater salvation is going to look like. I'm the God who saves, and this is how it happens. This story is our story. It's the story. Just as Israel was enslaved in Egypt and and on the brink of being destroyed, we're born into slavery to sin. And the wages of sin is death and destruction. It destroys our lives here on earth and it brings us into the judgment of God for eternity. The Lord has come to our rescue. On the cross, he he defeated our great enemy of sin and death. And just as Israel came out triumphant through the Red Sea, we come out through the waters of baptism. That is our our unity with Christ brought out of the land of slavery, rescued from his death, and made his own treasured possession, his bride, his people. And he dwells with us. 
The, the happily ever after of Exodus 40 is not just Israel's happily ever after. This is a promise of our happily ever after in Christ. This new beginning, this new obedience, this new blessing, they and more are all ours in Christ. Let me show you. Let's just double back and, and breeze through this. Verses 1 to 15, the Lord gives them a new beginning. On the first day of the year, they were to set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. They were, they were given this fresh start that has a new relationship with the Lord. Think about 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have a new beginning with a new relationship with the Lord. Remember the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. It was the Lord coming down to be with his people and the Lord making a way for them to approach him. How did God ultimately come down to his people? In a greater way. He came down to us fully in Jesus. The, the tabernacle is a shadow pointing forward to Christ. It's easy to miss this, but that's exactly what John 1.14 says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, that's, that's John's kind of nickname for Jesus. The Son of God who existed in eternity past has, has come down in flesh, in human body, and the Word there, He dwelt among us, it's skene, it's tabernacle. He tented among us. John didn't miss this. John knew exactly what he was talking about. And in that tabernacle, in Jesus, we see the glory of God come down to us. The tabernacle was pointing forward to and preparing the way for Christ, who is the real tabernacle, so that looking at the original tabernacle, we can understand more about who Jesus is and what he would do. And so we look at the Ark of the Covenant, this promise that the Lord would cover over sin, that he would shield his people from the curse of the law. It's Jesus. We see the, the screen in front of the ark, the veil that, that protected people from the fullness of the presence of the Lord. And, and when Jesus died on the cross, that veil is torn in two. God is saying, oh, we're going way beyond the original tabernacle. Now you will come fully into my presence in a real way. The table of showbread, the promise that God wanted to have intimate fellowship with them, wanted to have them for dinner, wanted to have a meal together. Jesus came and he said, I am the bread of life. Revelation 3.20, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what? I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The lampstand in the shape of a tree, a blossoming, budding tree. God is saying, I will give you new life and I will be your light. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the light of the world. And though he died on a tree and at his death, darkness covered the earth. Luke 24 tells us that at early dawn, at first light, on the first day of the week, you get the picture, he's picking up on it. 
Early dawn, on the first day of the week, the tomb is empty because he had risen from the dead, conquering darkness and death and bringing light and life to all. The altar of the burnt offering and the wash basin, the place of sacrifice for sin and washing from guilt. Jesus not only makes sacrifice for our sin, he gives himself as the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And when he died on that cross, they pierced his side and blood and water flowed, the symbol of forgiveness and cleansing. And the court around the tabernacle, the wall with one gate, one way in. God saying, I will only be found through this one way that I have made. And Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the door. Whoever comes through me will be saved. And of course, John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father but by me. He is our greater tabernacle. He fulfills all of it in, 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 in a greater, more glorious way. He's the presence of the Lord with us in Jesus. And he's also our tent of meeting. He is how we approach the Lord. Remember how the priests were to be anointed and and set apart and how they could go into the tabernacle, into the holy place to offer the sacrifices and prayers and worship on behalf of the people. Do you know what that word anointed sounds like in Hebrew? It's Mashiach. We would pronounce it Messiah. It's often translated Christ. He's the anointed one. And so when when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He's saying you're the anointed one. You're the one that God has set apart who can go into his presence on our behalf, who can represent us before him and we can come to God in you, Jesus. You want to know God? You want to see his glory? There's there's nowhere else to look but Jesus. In Jesus, God and man meet. Our new beginning is in Jesus. He is our tabernacle and tent of meeting. But also Jesus is our new obedience. He's our new obedience. Remember verses 16 to 33? Moses obeying detail by detail everything the Lord had commanded. He set up the tabernacle, preparing the way for the people to meet with the Lord and for his presence to come down and and how that stood in stark contrast against what the people had done to build their own way to glory. They failed so miserably and, and we like Israel, we are obsessed about trying to come to God our own way. Trying to, trying to live a good enough life, trying to do the right things, trying to, to, to get our way up to God, seeking glory our own way, trying to find joy and fulfillment, sometimes replacing God, and we can't do it. We try to work our way up to God on our own strength, and we fail every time. We try and replace God with something else, find our joy and contentment in something else, and every time we end up more empty than when we began. Our lives are marked by disobedience and distance from God. Like Israel, we have failed to obey. In order to get to that glorious new beginning, we need a new obedience that we just don't have, that we can't produce. But just as Moses did all the Lord commanded, building the tabernacle on behalf of Israel, 
Jesus lived the perfect life without sin. Complete obedience to the Father. And the only way for us to come to the Lord is not based on our pathetic failed attempts at obedience, but rather his obedience counted on our behalf. And that's what Romans 322 is talking about when it says the the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's Jesus' obedience counted to our account as a gift by faith. He is our new obedience. And then finally, in Jesus we have the new blessing. As the glory of God came down to dwell in the tabernacle. The visible presence of the Lord was with his people in the cloud by day and fire by night. Their assurance and their blessing was there. They knew, looking at that cloud, that they had his favor. And that was the way that he would bring them through to their final destination. That's the way he would would shepherd them to the promised land. And here the, the metaphor just shifts slightly listening to um, the book of Hebrews and how it contrasts Moses and Christ. Listen to Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Moses was faithful as a servant. That was his status. He's in the house and he's a servant. But Jesus, Jesus is faithful over the house as a son. The the servant works in the house. The servant is part of the house. The son is part owner of the house. Now get this, we are the house. If indeed we hold fast to our our confidence and our boasting and the hope that we have in Jesus. And so that is to say, those who trust in Christ, those who, who rejoice in Him and what He did on the cross, they're God's house. And so, again, the, the metaphor shifts a little bit, and we see that we become the new tabernacle. We become the new dwelling place for God on this earth. Of course, the tabernacle and temple serve the same function in different eras. And it's replaced by the church. Now, let's be clear, not the building that we meet in, but the people who gather and make up the church. And what happened on the day of Pentecost? The day the the church, the new church began, sound of a mighty rushing wind and the, the symbol of fire, the Holy Spirit, also called the Spirit of Jesus Christ, came down and filled the church. The glory of God himself dwelling, not in the tabernacle out there that was so near they could look and see it, but in us. And Ephesians 2.22 says, In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. That's what we are, church. The glory of God dwelling here. Yes, in us individually, but but ultimately in us as we gather as the church together. We always think how amazing it would be to see 
the cloud, to see the fire, to see the wonder of the tabernacle. And, and we miss that it is far more amazing that we have the presence of God in us. He is our assurance of God's blessing and, and God's favor to us. He's our, our confidence. He is the one who's going to bring us through to the promised land. Ephesians 1 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's the Holy Spirit in you who is the guarantee that you will not only be, be brought out of slavery to sin and death, but will continue to be brought all the way through to the promised land. He will complete this good work that he has begun. As the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us and convicts us of sin and prods us forward and, and brings us on. In Christ, this is our story. This is our hope. For all who come to Jesus and trust in him by faith, this is our happily ever after. In Christ, we who were slaves to sin, condemned to die, have new beginning, new life, restored relationship with the Lord himself who came down to us in Christ. And who in Christ, through, this, through his perfect obedience, made a way for us to approach him, to come to him, and who then sent his glory, his spirit to dwell in us and bring us safely through to the promised land, to heaven. And yeah, there are many roads to be traveled yet. There are many hurdles to be overcome. There are tests and temptations and storms to be weathered. But for those who hope in him, for those who rejoice in Christ, this is our happily ever after. This is our confidence. This is what our God has accomplished. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let's continue to hold fast, to boast in him and him alone. Let's pray.